Good evening, everybody, and a really big welcome here to everybody who's joined us tonight, and there's several hundred of you out there, to this first in a series of three events that 5 by 15 is holding with Rathbone's Investment Management. Over the next three months, starting with an hour tonight, we're going to be looking at issues around climate change, around finance, in particular about green finance, and about how we can tackle the climate crisis and really try to move forward. Rathbones has got a very simple policy. They invest in the future rather than just looking at what's going to happen tomorrow. So we're really delighted at 5 by 15 to be partnering with them tonight. And we've worked together on the topics and subjects for these seminars. And just uh, came in today, which I'm really pleased to say, that uh, Rathbones have put together a special series of Planet Papers, A Responsible Recovery, which look at, looks at how capitalism can change and work and become something that's a force for good for all of us. Now, tonight's session, we're really proud, has got some of the world's leading thinkers, uh, campaigners, and above all, leaders uh, of the conversation and the laws about climate change. I'm really delighted that we're going to welcome Juliet Davenport, of the CEO of Good Energy, James Thornton, who's the founder and the CEO of Client Earth, as well as Christiana Figueres, who was the Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and indeed led the only really successful negotiations we have had about climate change, which was the Paris Agreement in 2015. Adjoining her is Tom Rivet Karnak, who worked with Christiana at that time. And together, they have founded a new organization called Global Optimism. They have a fantastic uh, podcast called Outrage and Optimism, which I can't recommend too highly. And together, they have authored a wonderful book called The Future We Choose, the surviving the climate crisis, but it is a really optimistic book. And I hope, you know, tonight we're going to be talking about optimism. The format is really simple. We're going to have uh, the three groups, Tom and Christiana are going to talk together. Then we'll have Juliet and then James, and then they'll talk for about seven or eight minutes. Then we're going to have some questions and talk among ourselves. And then we will bring you in. So please use the Q&A at the bottom of your screen. And please put your questions in or your comments when you think of them. Don't save them up to the end. Um, I would very much like to say just before we kick off that uh, I'm a member of Peers for the Planet, which is an organization where we try really hard to put climate considerations into all legislation. And Christiana came to talk to us on Monday night as part of Climate Week. I know she's been incredibly busy and I'm really grateful to you for being here. But you know, she said very emphatically that this is a critical moment now. We really do only have 10 years to hit a 50% reduction in our emissions. So there's time for chatting is over. And so therefore I will absolutely stop chatting and hand you over to Tom and Christiana who are coming to us from right across the world. Uh, I'm in Greece, we're all everywhere. Uh, for once, technology is amazing. So Christiana and Tom, over to you and thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, we're, we're delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting us. So I'm going to kick off and then we're just going to spend 10 minutes having a little bit of a conversation. And um, as you said in the introduction, Christiana and I get to think things through together on quite a regular basis. We run this podcast called Outrage and Optimism. 
But I'm going to use this opportunity to make an assertion of something that I believe to be true. And then we'll see whether Christiana agrees with me. And I genuinely, Uh-oh. despite the fact that we spend they an hour together Tom, every we week. we have to do this publicly? It, we do, yeah. And we'll see what happens. Okay, so here okay. we go. <laughs> so back in January, Christiana and I launched this book called The Future We Choose. We managed to do two parts of a global book tour until the world shut down and we disappeared to our respective sides of the world, really with quite a high state of anxiety. The world's attention had been well focused on climate change. Greta and the young kids were doing their job of really focusing us and calling us to attention of what needed to happen. This was going to be the super year leading towards the COP in December. And then, of course, everything changed and the world's attention shifted to another direction. Now, the assertion that I want to make is that despite that, nine or seven, eight months later, we are now in a place that is arguably better than it would have been on climate than if COVID hadn't happened. And that is not to minimize the significant suffering that has happened to many people around the world. But if you look at it, in the midst of that time, while the world was shut down, we have seen an exponential impact increase in the number of net zero commitments that have appeared from all over the world. In just the last few months, we have gone from 500 to 1500 net zero commitments from businesses, from 11 to 101 net zero commitments from cities, from 100 to 823 net zero commitments from, um, sorry, this, this um, 11 to 101 commitments from states and regions and 100 to 823 from cities. We're now seeing the Chinese make a very significant mid-century commitment. We've seen the EU come forward with a major announcement and the climate negotiations will now happen after the US election. So there's a good chance we'll get another significant bump of momentum. So the assertion I want to put to you, Christiana, is All of that anxiety and concern we had back in February, that the world's attention was pivoting away from climate. Is it true, and would you agree, that seven months later, the world's attention has already pivoted back with renewed enthusiasm, with renewed determination to believe in the warnings of science, and that actually we now have more momentum than ever to be successful in this decade? Well, I'm so glad that that is what your assertion is, Tom, because I was getting a little bit nervous there. And I thought, hmm, okay, now we have to have a little discrepancy of opinion in public, which is always delightful. But I'm not sure that I was ready for that this morning. Uh, morning to me, to you. Um, but I actually do agree with you. Now, um, it comes as a surprise, right? Because this uh, refocusing on climate has come, what I would say, through the back door through uh, not not through um, understanding more of the science. The science has been there for a while. Um, not a new understanding of opportunities, but rather, I would say, a new understanding of the risks. And that's very interesting because the risks that we have been made uh, aware of now are not e- are not only the climate risk, but rather we are living in the most uncertain year that I certainly can remember in my 64 years. We, I, we, how, it's very difficult to remember any year in which we simply were unable to plan anything mid or long term because we didn't know where we weren't going to go. It was also very difficult to remember a time in which we had so much human suffering, Um, millions of people and families out of jobs, hundreds of thousands of people um, 
dead from COVID and so many having, uh, having had that disease and continuing. So, so all of these realities are sort of out there at the same time. Now, I would agree with you that uh, through the backdoor channels, through COVID and what we're experiencing, we've actually come forward in our understanding of the opportunities of climate. And I would say for a couple of reasons. First, I think that we have uh, understood or re-understood or relearned that science has to be the basis of policy. Those countries that are following scientific advice on COVID are doing much better. And those countries that follow scientific advice on climate change will do much better. And the world will do much better if, um, if we follow scientific advancement, uh, scientific advice. The other that is um, quite, uh, quite clear is that as we have begun to understand a little bit of where this disease came from, we are beginning to understand that there's an intricate relationship between our encroachment into nature and the appearance of zoonotic diseases. And, um, and we have understood that this is not the first and certainly not the last disease that has the power to stop the global economy, something that was very difficult for us to understand before. And so that, um, that cycle of encroachment into nature, um, certain animals then basically biting back into human society and causing these somatic diseases, that lesson is a very, very clear lesson that we have learned. We've also, I think, um, moved more into long-term thinking, perhaps ironically, because all of this was done very quickly. So we did learn that change can occur very quickly, but we've also learned as a corollary to that, that in order to avoid this kind of a situation, we have to do long-term thinking. And so it, we're moving from quarterly thinking and planning to quarter century thinking and planning which is a very welcome shift in, um, in mentalities. Um, and, and we're also learning the value of collaboration. Yes, in the first phase of COVID, we were all slammed into our homes behind a locked door. Um, but now that we're moving into how do we get out of this, we realize that this is going to have to be the product of collaboration, of collaboration in the medical world, in the um, in, in the in the industrial world for those industries that will produce the vaccines and certainly collaboration across governments to ensure that everyone gets a vaccine. Because if there's one person without a vaccine, no one is actually vaccinated. We have to be able to vaccinate everyone. Um, and finally, Tom, I'm not even quite sure what the word is to this, but my sense is that through this pain of COVID and through living in such close quarters with each other, for such a long time, I have the sense that we've become more human or more humane or more open to solidarity with other people who are having a much worse time than us. So whether it is through science, whether it is through understanding where the disease came from and, um, and that relationship with climate, whether it is through how we deal with each other collaboration or whether it is about resetting who we are. I do think, just to bring this down to one phrase, we started this year by thinking that the history would look back at 2020 as the great pause. Mm -hmm. And that was true for the first few months, 
But I actually think that now history will look back as 2020 as the great reset, as the great reset, because that reset button is being pushed on so many different fronts, certainly on climate, as you have just delineated. Mm. And I, I'm aware we probably don't have a huge amount of time. So Rose, you do jump in as we get towards the end of our time. But um, what, what that makes me think of there, particularly that comment of, of the human element of this is for many years, we really tried to get leaders to make difficult, bold commitments that were outside their sphere of comfort. And consistently leadership failed to make those types of bold commitments that were really transformative. But I would argue that we've seen a plethora of them this year. I mean, to just take one example, last week we had uh, Bernard Looney, the CEO of BP on our podcast. Now, I'm not saying that BP is a perfect organization by any means, but it really is fascinating to listen to him because we challenge him about lobbying. And we say, in the past, you've been duplicitous, your company, and you've said one thing and you've done another and you slowed it down. And the way he chose to respond to that was on a personal level. He said, that's not who I am as an individual. And that might be how BP has behaved in the past, but that is not going to be how we behave in the future. And I had this experience of listening to him, and there's a lot of examples like that, that finally this element of the human, I'm a human being and I'm bringing more of myself to this job rather than I'm hiding behind this corporate veil. Do you see that in other places as well, Christiana? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, no, definitely. And, and you know, Tom, you and I have spoken to so many um, other CEOs, in, in addition to Bernard Looney, who tell us that they are taking corporate strategic decisions um, on products and services and certainly on investments into the future because of their children. Yeah. Because, because the children ask them when they come home, yeah. what are you doing? Are you destroying my future or are you building my future? Um, and that's, you know, that's fantastic. We hear CEOs of oil and gas companies ask that. Recently, I heard Klaus Schwab, the, um, the head of the World Economic Forum, who's old enough to have grandchildren, who shared with us that his grandchildren are asking him, what is the WEF doing about my future? Are you helping to build my future or are you helping to destroy it? And um, I mean, he's been, you know, a climate uh, enthusiast for years, but, but, it definitely made a difference. His commitment to everything on climate just took a, a complete step up yeah. um, after his grandchildren have asked him that. And so I, that's what I mean about being more human, yeah. being more humane, being more aligned with who we are as people and what we do as leaders. Those two things are beginning to be much more closely aligned. Wonderful. Tom, thank you. Thank you both very much indeed. And thank you, Christiana, very much. I mean, that's so many interesting things you've raised. I do think this feeling that, uh, as someone said, I mean, I work a lot in you know, public health and that suddenly we've taken the realisation that global health is local health or local health is global health. And actually, you know, one small virus over there in Wuhan can affect the whole world. And it does seem that this has given us this chance of thinking actually as a world we can reset. But it's great what you say about CEOs thinking about different things. But our next speaker, Juliet Davenport, who is the founder and the chief executive of Good Energy, which is a renewable energy company with a mission to create a greener world, which in fact, Juliet, you founded 20 years ago. Um, Juliet, can you come in and talk about you know, how you see 
this COVID crisis, as, as Christiana calls it, and as we've called it, you know, the chance for a reset. Yes, Rosie, thank you. And Christiana, thank you. One for all your work you've done at the UN. It's been amazing to watch you. And also, I'm so looking forward now to hear your podcast. Um, so, so, so my background is I founded Good Energy 20 years ago, um, having been inspired to really find a practical way to engage, get customers to engage practically with climate change. Um, we were the UK's first 100% renewable energy supplier at a time when the UK only produced about 2% of its electricity from renewables. And I think um, we, what we tried to do was really take people on a journey that um, climate change wasn't that scary. You could do something about it and you could be engaged with it. And, and I would agree. I think COVID is, 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 is an interesting reset button in that, in that we've seen some interesting things happen in the energy market in the UK. So we've been progressing hugely in terms of more renewables, particularly in electricity. But during lockdown, we saw, we saw a reduction of demand and, and suddenly renewables came to the fore. So nearly 60% of our electricity was being generated from renewable energy. Now, 20 years ago, if I had said that in a public space, one, I would have been laughed out of court. Two, people would have said that's impossible to generate that much electricity from renewables. And I think what's, what's interesting from COVID is that we can see a behavioural change linking through to a technological transformation and really gives us a glimpse of how dramatic those two coming together could be for us going forwards. Um, but in some ways, sort of electricity is just the stepping off point. We, we also, if we're going to address climate change properly, we have to look at decarbonising heat and decarbonising transport. And um, I, think, I think what's so fascinating about COVID is uh, having run a business for 20 years, talking about people working from home or working remotely or that kind of flexible working process, we've been very resistant to it, even, even in an organisation like Good Energy, who, who's, who's embraced a lot of these technological shifts. Um, and, and yet, within four days, we had our whole workforce working from home. The paradigm of going into an office is completely transformed. The thought of getting on a plane just is completely changed as well and attending a meeting in person I mean what's fascinating about it is that it's wonderful to see people but also it's wonderful to have this freedom of being in different countries and being able to speak to each other um, and, and I think this this kind of idea that we've pressed a reset I think there's two parts to it and just just to follow up on what Christiana said this what's interesting about is we've been forecasting uh, scientists have been forecasting the potential for a pandemic for a long time and of course, it's a bit like saying the end of the world is nigh. Until it happens, nobody believes you. Um, now, obviously, it's happening. We're in it. Scientists are being believed. And I think that has had a knock-on effect into the climate um, this debate, is that if people can forecast a pandemic, then maybe the forecasts about climate are also true. I also think that what people have experienced during this pandemic, the kind of clean air, the community, the wildlife resurgence, we're seeing a lot of the polls that are beginning to suggest that very few people actually want to go back to a life before because they've seen the potential of the life of the good parts of the life of lockdown. Um, and I think it's like it's, RSA talked about 9% of people wanting to go back to normal after lockdown, which, which suddenly engages with the fact that actually people do want change. They don't want to stay in this world that has dirty air, 
and as as we saw most recently in the UK, dirty rivers and lakes and seas. Um, we we want a world that's cleaner, and 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 potentially we're we're happy to engage with a way of thinking about that. Um, so so does it is it a turning point? And I think I've definitely seen the 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 ability to put pressure on and and tell a positive story about building back better, building back in a green green way. Unlike, unlike the last um, sort of recession where we just built back as fast as we could. And in fact, the last recession, we increased carbon emissions as a result of the way we built back. So I think there is some really thoughtful um, processes going in. And, and we've seen these amazing stimulus packages um, to make sure that it's a, both our, our country, but also the world can get back and fight this pandemic. Um, and understanding how that package has been used, I think the EU package is what 750 billion, at least 30% is making being making sure it's been spent on fighting climate change. So, government has a huge role in this in terms of how it directs some of these funds that it's looking to to rebuild. And and the mini budget that we saw came out in the UK um, was really focused on building green homes, supporting people to um, make their existing homes more efficient, and actually. That make, people are interested in that now because they're spending so much more time at home as well. But I think the, the key for me is that we can use it as a transition and reset point, but we can't let the, we can't just relax now and say it's done because what is absolutely apparent is, is political tension can be very short lived. And unless you keep the pressure up and keep moving forwards, um, then it may well sink back quite interestingly, easily. And I think this is where business, we're beginning to see pay in a really important role in terms of the announcements that we're seeing coming out. I think it's something like 30% of the FTSE 100 have now made a commitment to either zero carbon or, or renewables. And I think that pressure, um, and, and, and I'm very happy to be corrected, but I think was important um, at COP in Paris, but also is really important as part of the makeup now to keep that pressure on government, to keep, keep that positivity moving forwards. Because I think it's estimated that between five and seven trillion is needed a year to really deliver on the sustainable development goals. And that, that investment needs to come not just from government, but from financial markets, whether it's pensions being redirected into this market, but also business. And so I think if we take a step back, I, I really think we're seeing leadership now from business. I think we're seeing leadership politically, but that's quite easy to move backwards on and we need to keep the pressure on it. And I think we're seeing people engage with a possible future where they're painting a picture that they believe is better than the one they have today. Juliet, thank you so much. That was fantastic and full of incredibly interesting things. I mean, I, I totally agree with you about the need to keep the pressure on uh, and not to, you know, let people get drawn back to states of inertia or just reaching for the same old solutions yeah. that we thought we had in the past. And as you say, after the, after the financial crash of 2008, emissions actually went up dramatically in the following year. Um, I'd like to bring in our last speaker, um, James Thornton, who's the CEO and founder of Client Earth, which has been um, now is a global institution employing or, or working with lawyers all around the planet to stop coal fired power stations, to pass acts about clean air. And I know also, James, you've done a huge amount of work in recent years in China. So over to you and um, 
please tell us about A, what you do, but also again, how you see COVID as providing us with a launch pad of some kind to change the paradigm, have a paradigm shift. James. Thank you, Rosie. It's a pleasure to be with you, with you all. Um, so law is what, uh, when I was uh, talking to Christiana and Tom on their podcast, uh, they were saying, what makes you optimistic? And really using law makes me optimistic. So uh, uh, law captures the, uh, a snapshot of a culture at any moment. Uh, and what we're seeing is that uh, as uh, people are waking up to the need to make dramatic shifts uh, to address climate change and biodiversity loss together, uh, that law is shifting very rapidly. Uh, and what law can do uh, when you use it uh, in a high leverage sort of way is help move markets uh, quickly uh, and uh, require uh, finance flows to move in the right direction, away from dirty energy to clean energy, for example. Uh, one is forcing it, and the other is to make the world safe for renewable energy, so to remove legal barriers and to give inducements uh, for the right kind of behavior. So uh, I want to give you uh, examples uh, from uh, three areas, really, about how uh, powerful law can be. One is litigation, uh, and uh, I'm a litigator, uh, and uh, litigation is great fun, but it also achieves uh, genuine results in the world. Uh, <clears throat> second is corporate finance, uh, and then third is, uh, is indeed what's going on in China, uh, which is very exciting. So <clears throat> some litigation experiences. I mean, what we've done in Europe over the last uh, 10, 12 years is uh, either prevent <clears throat> the building of <clears throat> or shut down 48 coal-fired power stations. Now, that, uh, is, uh, that's an important thing because when I started Client Earth, I asked scientists, what do I do if I can do only one thing when I had two people? And they said, stop all the coal-fired power stations in Europe. Well, uh, 13 years later, we've, we've managed to do that. Uh, and uh, we have another 50 uh, cases against coal-fired power stations going on. Uh, at the moment. One of the things after a couple of successful cases uh, in Greece that happened was that Greece decided uh, to announce that it was going to stop using coal for all electricity generation by 2028. <clears throat> now that's remarkable because that's largely the result of, of, of Greek NGOs uh, and we working with them bringing in a few successful cases. So if you find the right acupuncture point, uh, it can be an enormously uh, powerful uh, result that you get. Yesterday in Poland, so uh, we've been working in Poland for a long time now, and we, uh, we had sued the largest coal-fired power station in Europe, the company that owns it, uh, demanding that they uh, shut down by 2030. Yesterday, we had a landmark victory in Poland uh, and in court, uh, and the judge said that uh, she would order, she did order, uh, the company to sit down, and they had 30 days to negotiate with us on the shutdown of the facility. Uh, so this is the largest coal-fired power station in Europe or else they would go to trial. Uh, and she was inclined to uh, go with us in trials. So they've been given a very strong signal. Now, um, <clears throat> so that's the, some uh, examples of litigation. Now, corporate finance, a couple of examples very quickly. Um, in, um, in Asia, uh, two weeks ago, working with uh, Japanese uh, NGOs, um, we, and they managed to get a, a one of the largest Japanese uh, banks who invests in coal to completely change what they were doing. So uh, the Japanese NGOs uh, produced a shareholder resolution. Um, <clears throat> we worked with global investors uh, in the bank. Uh, and the result was, even though the resolution didn't pass, it got a very large number of votes. And the bank then quickly uh, decided it was going to change its investment policy. Uh, a big portion of it had been into coal. 
uh, and now almost no coal. So again, a very important shift uh, that happened merely as a result of a, of a shareholder resolution that was uh, cleverly imagined uh, by, the, by the Japanese uh, organizations. In the UK, in Parliament right now, uh, something we've been working on for years, and Mark Carney has been talking about for years. So there's, um, there's a bill going through, which I think will go through, that will require all pension funds in the UK to disclose uh, the impact of climate change on their business and the impact of all of their investments on climate change uh, in a very, very detailed way. That would be the first time in any country uh, where you had this mandatory disclosure. Uh, and it, it, would be, it would change uh, the way investors saw uh, everything, uh, I think, quite quickly, because the pensions market in the UK is $3 trillion. It's the second largest in the world. So by requiring that of the pension funds, you are requiring it to move out very quickly into how investments are seen and done. The next stage for, for law is to make it mandatory for companies to have, just like Europe, has, and just like China announced that it was going to do, uh, to have uh, uh, business plans that would make them net zero by 2050. Um, a number of companies have said they want to do that. Uh, BP, for example, Tom mentioned, uh, it's, it's a great thing. Uh, the, it's, it's a pretty fuzzy commitment at the moment. So what you need is a legal requirement that businesses do this, uh, which becomes enforceable. Uh, and then everything again changes very quickly. So the disclosure and then the mandatory requirement for actually coming up the business plan. Now, uh, China. So uh, uh, we see a lot uh, about China in the Western press. It tends to all be very negative on the environmental, and for reasons we will understand all of this. But uh, in, the, um, in the environmental domain, they have been uh, doing some wonderful things. So uh, Tom mentioned Xi Jinping uh, at the UN yesterday said that they would uh, commit to the negative or net carbon zero emissions for the entire country before 2060. That's remarkable since they're the world's biggest emitter and since it's harder for them to do it uh, than it is for Europe because they're, even though they're sophisticated, they're still a developing economy. So it's a remarkable commitment and if they follow it, it will, it will change the world. But will they follow it? I think so. I mean, I've been working there since 2014 and we have a Beijing office. We've been working with the Supreme Court uh, directly. Uh, we've been working with the federal prosecutors directly. So training judges, training prosecutors. And uh, what's happened uh, since training the prosecutors is that in the last uh, couple of years, the prosecutors have brought over 100,000 uh, environmental cases, uh, which they're winning. So they're uh, imposing the rule of law for the environment very rapidly in China. So that's part of the trend they need to put in place if they are to fulfill the commitment that Xi Jinping made yesterday in the, in the UN. So to get the rule of law for the environment so that companies behave, they know they've got to behave, they know they've got to follow the law, then when they set this higher agenda, uh, companies will have to do it. So uh, that makes me enormously optimistic. And finally, the, um, uh, we've been working very closely with the government on, on China on their Belt and Road Initiative. And this goes to your COVID question. So it's about a trillion, it'll be more than that, in investment uh, in over 100 countries in infrastructure. And if you do it in the wrong way, uh, the Paris Agreement will be much harder to meet if you do it in the old-fashioned way. If you invest in green energy infrastructure, and if you in, uh, make all of these investments green, it's one of the largest investment programs that the planet will ever see uh, in green infrastructure. And 
uh, Xi Jinping's commitment at the UN yesterday uh, makes it much easier to argue for the greening of all Belt and Road investment. We can get into that more if you like. We've been arguing that Belt and Road investment should be seen as uh, COVID investment and as a, a way of starting the economy in all these different countries uh, that China is working in um, after COVID. So those are just some thoughts, but gives you a sense of what, what, how useful law is as a tool and how rapidly things are, are changing and how really a very small group of people can make a dynamic difference by finding the right acupuncture points. James, thank you. That was, that was fantastic and incredibly interesting about, about China. I mean, can I pick that up with you, Christiana? I mean, I, I, I naturally, we all do. You know, we sit in the House of Lords and we have loads of questions about the Chinese treatment of the Uyghurs and, you know, what they do about human rights. So there is a lot of cynicism about China that, uh, so, so you take these, um, these announcements with a slight pinch of salt. What, what's your view, Christiana? I mean, it seems terrifically exciting. Yes, well, we are also um, very excited. And if there's anything that we have observed about China over the decades that we've uh, worked with them on climate change is that they tend to under-promise and over-deliver, which is not what most people do. And it's certainly not what most countries do. We tend to do exactly the opposite. So it is quite remarkable that... Uh, that President Xi Jinping, first of all, taking the floor just minutes after President Trump, mm -hmm. um, and then that he chose to step forward because I, I believe, James, that it was in the podcast, the episode that we did with you, um, that you told us about your work in China. And I believe in our conversation later, I said, China is playing the waiting for Godot game because they're waiting to see if there's going to be any adult in the White House that they can actually work with. Well, I'm delighted to be wrong. I am delighted to have been wrong because apparently they're not waiting for Godot. Um, stepping forward, stepping forward into a vacuum of leadership and going here hand in hand with the European Union, despite the huge difference in emissions and in emission reduction potential that the European Union has on this big versus, uh, versus China. So it is a huge step forward. And I, I take... Uh, statements like that from the Chinese president very seriously. Now, this does not mean that um, they have little uh, wings growing out of their sides, right? It, they're not perfect, as, uh, as Tom and James have said. No country is perfect. Um, no company is perfect. No person is perfect. And China does come from a very deep legacy of using coal and financing coal in other countries. And so they need to work on both of those things. Now they started closing coal plants, not because of climate considerations, but rather because of local health considerations. Uh, and I believe that they took that as far as they could. My sense, but I would love to know what Jay, uh, Jim, uh, James thinks about this. My sense is that this statement is no longer about public health. I think they're gone beyond that. And they're really now looking at planetary and, um, and they are looking at how do they position themselves in a world that is undoubtedly decarbonizing? How do they position themselves for continued competitiveness in a, uh, in a carbon uh, constrained economy? Um, and of course, I, I think there's also a little bit of, um, 
of ego here um, just to show the U.S. down. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just a little bit too tempting when uh, U.S. leadership is saying what it is saying. It's just a little bit too tempting to say, right, in that case, let me show you what adults think. <laughs> That's really interesting that we can... Um we can sort of possibly thank President Trump for um, playing a particular political card that has meant that China has stepped into this vacuum. That is a, a really kind of great result. Do you think, I mean, Tom, do you think that um, we will, out of all this, you know, the worry about the world levels of unemployment after COVID or whatever we're into now after COVID, middle of COVID, that there will be temptations to slither backwards. I mean, have we got enough embedded in the infrastructure uh, to, as I say, going back to what I said at the beginning, I mean, Christiana's statement on Monday, we have to get to 50% in the next 10 years, which is a really tight timetable. Um, what, what do we need to do in terms of sort of public opinion? What can we, you know, you, you write about this in your book and you write, you talk about this in your podcast. Can you give us some snapshots for all of us? Yeah, I mean, there will. I mean, there always has been, and there will continue to be multiple different pre pressures on all policymakers, right? In terms of sh securing short-term employment, etc., as we need to do. And the background of widening inequality is the context in which all of this happens, right? So that will absolutely continue to be the case. But I think what we're seeing is, you know, around the world in lots of different countries, the pressure is really building on national leaders, whether it's for ego reasons, which is very powerful and important. Just look at what's happening in Silicon Valley in a very different sector where CEO after CEO is trying to outdo each other with bigger and bigger climate commitments. That's very helpful. Or local health concerns or very useful legal campaigns that are pushing them and limiting their options to backslide from where they are, increasing public pressure and these kinds of moments of collective realization that the world draws itself together, which will happen at the end of next year. So when you take all of that together, of course, for the odd national leader, a Trump or a Bolsonaro, you can rely on them to sort of make the wrong decisions. But I think that the direction of travel is clear and most world leaders want to be on the right side of history, right? They don't want to be remembered as somebody who created these terrible problems, who didn't manage them well. So I think that there is, of course, there will be backsliding. We can't be complacent. We continue need to put pressure. We need to ensure that we consolidate our gains. But the direction of travel is encouraging at this moment. Uh, Juliet, do you see enormous change in your marketplace? No. Oh, yeah. I think our marketplace has been dramatically shifted over the last 20 years and, and accelerating through that. And, and also, I mean, sort of 10 years ago, we were having debates about how are we going to survive if we have, if renewable energy doesn't turn up and we don't have enough renewable power. We're now debating how do we deal when we have too much renewable power in our energy system? <laughs> and what do we do with that extra power um, during times of high wind or whatever? So I think, I think what's interesting is, is the debate has completely shifted. This concept that renewables can't deliver is going away. Um, and particularly with the most recent data where we're showing that solar and wind are the cheapest energy forms of new energy going forward. So why wouldn't you build with renewable low carbon, um, given the fact that it's cheaper than every other form of energy production? Yes. Um, James, when you see the, the, the next tranche of legal battles coming towards you, I mean, how do you deal with 
I mean, let's let's take Bolsonaro in. I know you've worked a little in Brazil, but, you know, I work in food politics. And, and what you see is still deforestation and the same in, in Malaysia and Borneo, deforestation to, you know, power a cheap food world and very greedy leaders who seem to be quite happy just to take the cash and not worry about what's going to happen. Yes, well, I mean, on uh, on food and agriculture, I, I mean, I start uh, working uh, on, on my view of that by working in the EU, and the EU is actually uh, making great strides in, uh, in that. So the common agricultural policy is the EU's agriculture policy, and it has been in the past terrible. It's been pushing $55 billion a year uh, towards uh, industrial agriculture, uh, leading to huge use of pesticides uh, mm. and, uh, to destruction of soils, uh, destruction of, of biodiversity. And there's a deep shift happening. Uh, and uh, we've been working to get the uh, common agriculture policy under the umbrella of the European Green Deal. Uh, and the European Green Deal is an attempt uh, to invest a trillion euros over the next 10 years uh, in green things, uh, including a post-COVID burst uh, of investment. So there you see uh, the possibility of investment uh, and the government intention and actions moving uh, the uh, agricultural industry uh, in a very positive direction. Harder uh, to work in Brazil. I mean, we're, we're beginning now to work in all across Southeast Asia and Brazil. Um, uh, there, there are the possibility uh, of using in some countries uh, litigation. I mean, we're about to bring cases in Indonesia and I, and I hope uh, constitutional cases in Brazil. And then there's a possibility of using uh, trade uh, uh, agreements uh, in a very powerful way uh, and linking trade agreements uh, and it's now widely discussed by civil society by government uh, and uh, uh, and in particular with Brazil there's a big trade agreement between the EU and uh, Brazil that's being negotiated uh, and governments starting with France uh, were saying how can we not use this tremendous power of trade to require that they do better practices for forestry and agriculture so I think that shift is coming if it's a bit slower than in the energy sector. Yes, I have to say I see I see quite a big pushback at the moment from the UK mm -hmm. government about having yeah. trade standards, you know, written into the letter of the law rather than just vague agreements. Anyway, we have loads of questions coming in from our audience. I mean, I, I don't know who wants to pick this up, but it really interests me. Have there been through Michael McAvoy? Have there been moves to make the tech companies? disclose the amount of energy used by their servers as we rely more and more on internet communication throughout the globe. Use of energy to power our computers will be increasing. Um, Tom, Christiana, who, oh. it's always a mystery to people. You always imagine that the internet uses no power at all. <laughs> and it's a very clever illusion. Yeah. So, so uh, that's actually one of the areas that the tech companies have been pretty good on, right? I mean, for a long time now, we've seen um, most tech companies run their servers largely or completely on renewable power. I mean, Google is just committed to running 100% clean power all the time and Facebook run on 100% clean power on their servers. So that's actually, and they're pretty good on disclosing it. I don't think there's a regulatory requirement for them to do what do so, although there should be. But in terms of voluntary disclosure, um, they're pretty good. Where they're less good, is actually in more their, their more nuanced role in society, right? So actually Facebook 
measuring and offsetting or using renewable power for its services is, is the least interesting part of how Facebook influences <laughs> the climate debate in some ways, right? So they're now trying to be a bit more thoughtful with their information center that tags climate related posts, but it's still pretty patchy and there's still quite a lot of misinformation on there. Um, and the same would be true for Google and the, the types of returns that they generate depending on where you are. So it's an interesting question. It's important they do it, but much more important is how they use their consumer facing part of their business to ensure we don't drown in misinformation and we don't get lost before we're able to actually take collective action on these and, and and tom on that it, what was really interesting is that we had to register as a political party to be able to put advertising on facebook related yeah. to climate change so have we for our tiny little podcast right yeah yeah that's right <laughs> So I'll vote for you, Julian. <laughs> <laughs> but it was mad. It was like, no, we're just advertising who we are and what we do. Yeah. And we had to register as a political party to be able to advertise on Facebook. Um, Juliet, staying with you for a minute, the question here from Catherine Budget Meekin. I still worry about the nuclear lobby. Has it any future at all? And actually, yeah. the word nuclear never seems to come up at the moment. Um, where it's do you feel Still there, but but where there? So I think I think the issue for me about nuclear has always been the truth about nuclear. So so um, one of the things as an industry, it's been very untransparent. One about its cost, and two about its environmental impact. And I think um, this is this is again what we're seeing at the moment is 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 the industry negotiating behind closed doors. So if you saw most recent stats in the UK that was released on the data on the total cost of installing new power stations. The one that wasn't listed was nuclear, apparently because they're not allowed to tell us. And, and, and so, so my personal view is on nuclear is that if we had some transparency in the conversation, at least we might trust the industry more because we, be, we were promised to be cooking our dinners on nuclear power kind of 10 years ago when they were meant to build Hinkley C. Will it ever deliver? And does it just sit in the way of everything else? I mean, sometimes I feel like it's this massive roadblock and renewables are having to kind of go around it to get at the marketplace. And, and that's my biggest concern about it is, is like, get out of the way um, uh, and, and let us get through. And if you want to come in, fine, but, but make sure you're competing on the same terms as us and you're delivering the same value of product and not not giving us a long-term cost legacy. I mean, what is it? I think, I think the, the annual budget of one of the firms to deal with waste in the UK is three, tri three billion pounds. And it's like, where is that in our cost calculation? Mm -hmm. So I, I just think we need to be really honest about nuclear rather than, than um, and, and this, so this is, I, I make a lot of comments about it, more to get data out there rather than saying this is right or this is wrong. That's really if, if I can jump in there, um, Rosie, to, uh, to, to just underline what Juliet has said. Um, the fact is that the cost curves of renewables and the cost curves of nuclear are actually in our favor because um, it is absolutely clear that the cost of renewables have, are cheaper today than they were yesterday, but they will be even cheaper tomorrow. So that cost curve is definitely on the descent and will continue to be on the descent. The cost curve of nuclear is actually the opposite because in order to, for any country that can afford it, 
to, um, to build a nuclear plant, they will have to go to fourth generation nuclear because of the safety issues that we all know. And that becomes more and more and more expensive. And, you know, if we have a fourth generation that has some kind of accident, they will have to go to some fifth generation. And it's just more and more expensive. So if we know today that um, renewables have never been as, uh, as expensive as they are today and that they will be cheaper, and we also know that nuclear has never been as cheap as it is today because it's going to be more expensive and it already is pretty expensive. Then you just look at those two cost curves and you go, well, so, you know, let's just let the market and economics do their thing. And it's only going to be a very small subset of countries that can even afford to put in mm-hmm. nuclear plants. Very, very few. Um, so maybe we should, you know, focus our energy and our thought and our time on other things. Yeah. So in the end, we will have sort of these great giants sitting there. <laughs> um, well, can I just make a, a quick uh, final comment yeah. on nuclear? Uh, I was talking uh, to the chair of Rolls-Royce uh, a couple of months ago, asking him, uh, you know, you, you are a beautiful technology company. What about fourth generation nuclear? Uh, uh, and he said, oh, well, we've designed a beautiful fourth generation uh, nuclear uh, plant. And I said, well, you're going to sell them? And he said, no, uh, we think we can make it uh, terribly safe uh, and uh, it could even be affordable for some. Uh, but we think there's, globally there's no market for it, uh, even for Rolls-Royce. And I thought that was extremely interesting. That was very encouraging. So... Other questions that are coming in, there's quite a lot around the area, James, but also Christiana and everyone on this, this question again of how the, how the law, can we have legal boundaries about how we can protect against um, deforestation and clean air? And I'm thinking particularly of the case in America, Juliana versus the United mm-hmm. States, that you, know, you were legally entitled to inherit a decent country. Is that what it was called, James? You know what I'm talking yes. about. Uh, yes, 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 sure. So there are a number of cases around the world now that are really about basic human rights uh, and clean air uh, and climate. Um, and the Juliana case um, didn't work, uh, but other cases are, are working. There was a, a big European case called Urgenda uh, in which the, uh, the court found uh, in the Netherlands that uh, people had uh, a right to uh, a healthy environment that included uh, reduction in, in climate change. Uh, And there are a number of cases around the world like that. I mean, we've just, on behalf of the people of Vanuatu, the island of Australia, sued Australia um, uh, on uh, human rights grounds. And what we're seeing uh, is that uh, human rights are, uh, and the right to a healthy future, are rapidly coming together with environmental rights. It hasn't been the case uh, before, with environmental law and human rights law coming together. Now, I expect uh, courts to be able to more plug into the developing psyche of, uh, of the population saying, we need to be protected uh, and you need to take care of us. And I think we'll see more and more courts doing that. And it's a very exciting development. Um, Christiana, a question here very much for you. Um, what, what's the role now of the U- UN climate process at this point? This is from Anita Macri. And, and where are we going with terms of global agreements. I mean, I know we've obviously had to postpone the COP, but there's lots going on behind the scenes. What are you, what are you hoping to see in Glasgow next year? And what, what, more to the point, what do we need to see? 
Um, well, the, the first thing to understand is that we no longer need a new agreement. The Paris Agreement was built uh, not as a static agreement, but actually as a uh, very much of an agreement that will accompany the path of decarbonizing the global economy, probably for two or three decades until we get there. Let's hope we get there before 2050. Um, but it was meant to do that. It was meant to accompany that process. So we don't, we don't have to um, panic that we need yet another global agreement. That, that structure is set and the role of the UN um, Climate Change Convention and that process is actually now not to negotiate agreements, although the piece of the market and carbon pricing is still a pending issue to be negotiated, but 95% of uh, the, the path toward decarbonization, the tools are actually already set. So the role of that convention and those who participate in it is actually to monitor progress. And the way they're gonna monitor progress is they have already under the Paris Agreement already set a five-year cycle, which is not too long uh, to be responsible, but, uh, but long enough to really be able to make a marked difference. So every five years, countries come together again around the table to uh, quantify what they've been able to do with respect to the goal that they registered in the previous cycle and increase their ambition for the next cycle. Mm -hmm. So um, that is what Glasgow next year is all about. It should have happened in 2020. And so it's the first five-year cycle, which is called the global stock take, which is exactly that. It's stock taking of where are we? And above all, where do we need to go? That's why it is so exciting that we see so many corporations taking the lead and really understanding that they have a very important role to play out of self-interest in decarbonizing their corporations, their supply chains um, of all of their products and services, because that is going to give a sense of comfort to governments by next year, that if the corporates are moving forward, then they can undertake a more ambitious goal by next year. So that's the process. What, what the Paris Agreement does is it basically um, nurtures a virtuous cycle of, uh, of corporates and governments and subnational governments using each other's progress to strengthen their platform and be able to move forward to the next step. And do you think that um, actually this, this cancellation of a year and because of COVID and because of the way the world now thinks that in fact, we'll have a much better story to tell when we get to Glasgow. Well, here, here is Rosie where again, I'm so happy to be wrong. I'm always happy to be wrong if being wrong means we're doing a better thing. So um, I was one of the people who, a few people, I think most people were in agreement immediately about the postponement of COP26 to next year. And I wasn't, I wasn't in agreement because I have always thought that that deadlines are good. I personally operate by deadlines and we saw that the deadline of 2015 was very, very good for that process. And so I was concerned about letting that deadline slip. However, I am delighted to have been proven wrong um, because what we have seen in this year, as, as Tom explained, is that COVID has actually unleashed a huge number of, uh, of corporate commitments to decarbonize their operations, their products, their services, their, their value chain, 
Um, and what that collectively will do between now and next year, the end of next year, is provide, as I say, that confidence to, uh, to governments to move forward. If we were walking into COP26 now within a couple of weeks uh, with the U.S. election, you know, on our heads, um, I'm not sure what color hat we would be wearing um, because we don't know which way the election is going to go. But it would have been, from a political point of view, a very, very charged political environment, no matter which way the election goes, especially considering that there's a high probability that we will not know which way the election is going to go for several weeks, several months, God forbid, God forbid, but we will be able to have COP26 in a much more tranquil political context and certainly with much more corporate progress. Well, that's, that's brilliant. That's a great note to end the sort of sense of what the corporates can do. And it's incredibly positive to hear all this. But I'd now like to, in the last two or three minutes that we've got, a question from Hermione Taylor about lots of great points about the role of business and law. But what do each of you think that the individuals themselves should do? Um, Juliet, what's our, what should we uh, do? So, so I, I think, think, I think, I think, Obviously, from a personal point of view, you can do as many things in your own home, whether that's how you heat your home, how you light your home, how you get from place to place. So I think there is that kind of personal responsibility. But I do think that we all have a responsibility to make sure that any political capability we have, whether that's within our office, whether that's with our local politicians, where that is that we do stand up and we do say this isn't okay to carry on as before and that we do make our voice heard and whether that's working with people like James or speaking on podcasts with Tom and Christiana or whether it's just um, talking to our neighbours it doesn't really matter I think every step now has to be a step forward and it's one of the things I'm trying to call for at government level is no backward step on carbon every step has to be a step forward now. Thank you, Juliet. James? Well, um, so uh, I think you have to make as many changes in your life as you can. Obviously, you start there. Uh, that uh, makes uh, you uh, tune in on a daily basis. I, I'm a Buddhist. I like to practice. So that's a kind of good, good practice. Um, and then, uh, as Juliet is saying, talk to people. Uh, connect. Uh, keep, uh, keep the issue alive. Uh, believe. Keep the faith. Uh, and um, you know, uh, and support a, a charity that's working on, on the environment. There are hundreds of good environmental groups working on this, and they all need your support. Thank you, Tom. Uh, well, you, you're going to sense a theme. So, very quickly, three things that we unpack in the book. The first we say is that this is the most consequential decade in the history of humanity, and it sounds like hyperbole to say that, but it's not. So the first thing is, how do we individually as human beings want to show up at this pivotal time? This is a huge privilege to be alive at this moment. And what we talk about in the book is we say, actually, rather than cowering in fear, which is how many of us often feel, and we feel very anxious about whether we're going to meet this challenge, we need to ride out to meet it and face it with a kind of gritty, determined, stubborn form of optimism that actually suggests we can do this because we only get one shot at doing it, right? So the first is how we show up. The second is our own lives. As has been said by the others, doing things in your own life can be significant in terms of emissions. It also keeps you engaged and makes you feel less anxious. So we have 10 years to reduce emissions. We tend to overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in 10 years. 10 years is more than enough time to cut your emissions in half. And the third one is how you engage with power in all its forms. 
corporations, governments, local governments, whatever else it may be, use all of your voices as a citizen, as a consumer, as a voter to engage with power on this issue. And Christiana, final word to you. Well, let me keep it very short. I agree with all three. And here's my summary. Folks, this is it. Let's do it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to, to Tom, Christiana, James and Juliet. And thank you very much to Rasbones for being such a great partner for us. And thank you to all the, well, several hundred people who stayed with us. And also to all of you who sent in questions that I'm afraid we can't answer. And I see I've got some wonderful questions about food that someone has actually asked me about the ELM scheme, which I would love to talk about. I'll have to wait for another day. In the meantime, thank you all from all over the globe for joining us. Please take away the fact that, yeah, this is it, guys. You know, this is not a, this is not a dress rehearsal. This is the real thing. We can't push it, it anymore. Thank you very much and good night.